0: This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. 2020 election presidential election probe special counsel Michael Gableman had advised Republicans that changing Wisconsin's 2020 electoral votes would be functionally impossible after he advised state lawmakers to work to try to do so, an idea advocates called decertification. According to a memo obtained by the liberal watchdog group American Oversight, Gableman had informed Assembly Speaker Robin Voss that any decertification process would be, quote, tied up in the courts for years, unquote, and would achieve nothing besides a, quote, defense Facto full employment program for election law lawyers. That memo was sent two weeks after he issued his report to state lawmakers in March. Gableman's election review has cost Wisconsin taxpayers more than $1.1 million, according to the Associated Press.
1: Former President Donald Trump has endorsed another candidate running in next week's primary election, this time endorsing the Republican running against Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. The Wisconsin State Journal reports Adam Steen, an avid denier of the 2020 presidential vote, won Trump's endorsement after the twice-impeached president called Voss a Republican in name only, or "rhino." Trump has gone after Voss in recent weeks after Voss said that he would not work to change Wisconsin's 2020 electoral votes, a move which legal experts have repeatedly called both illegal and impossible. Boss represents much of Racine County, an area that voted heavily for Donald Trump in the 2020 election.
0: Appointments to receive a vaccine for monkeypox were filled this week after Public Health madison Dane County opened a clinic to provide them on Monday. Currently, supply for the vaccine is limited, and the Wisconsin Department of Health Services has only been allotted enough doses for 743 people. Because of that supply, only certain people are recommended to receive the vaccine, including people with direct exposure to someone who has been diagnosed with monkeypox, according to the Capital Times. As of Monday, there were 14 confirmed cases of monkeypox reported in the state.
1: The Madison Common Council is considering how to spend a federal grant it secured to increase public safety in the State Street neighborhood. The Downtown Entertainment Corridor has seen a rapid increase in the number of violent crimes committed, with a 30 percent increase in shootings, battery, and sexual assault from 2017 to 2019. To address that problem, the Madison Police Department secured a $380,000 federal grant to improve safety in the area, reported the Wisconsin State Journal. How exactly to spend those funds is now being considered, with a plan put forward by Alders Patrick Heck and Mike Brevere that would increase lighting in the area and provide training for bartenders and other bar staff in the area for intervening in dangerous situations. The plan also calls for training safety ambassadors that would work in pairs to deal with potentially dangerous situations before they escalate.
0: School districts across Dane County are struggling to fill staffing vacancies as they head into the new school year. As of July 28th, there are still approximately 650 teacher, administrator, and staff vacancies across 12 school districts, including more than 300 vacancies in the Madison Metropolitan School District, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The chronic vacancies come after the Madison School Board approved a 3% wage increase for all staff in July, a rise that critics said did not keep up with inflation. And now on to today's top stories.
1: Today, Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett announced he's shutting down part of the existing Dane County Jail, citing deteriorating conditions. That announcement came just hours before a group of county supervisors publicized a new proposal to scale back the project to build a new jail and invest in community programs. WORT producer Nate Buggyhout has the story.
2: The Dane County Jail began to move residents out of the jail and into other county jails today, the start of a project to close the east wing of the aging jail on the 7th floor of the city-county building. Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett says that over the next week, 65 individuals incarcerated in the Dane County Jail are headed to jails in three counties, Iowa, Rock, and Oneida. He says that the move is unavoidable because the jail is deteriorating.
3: Uh, so safety and security is number one, and with the conditions of the you know, now nearly 70-year-old jail um, and the failure of locking mechanisms and uh, the exposure of lead and all the things that's going on, we've made the decision to uh, place our residents in a safer facility that's outside of the county. The
2: announcement from Sheriff Barrett came just hours before a group of Dane County supervisors unveiled a new proposal to build a smaller jail. The group, known as the Dane County Black Caucus, is a group of black and black ally supervisors currently sitting on the Dane County Board. They include District 15's April Kigea, District 33's Dana Pelabon, District 14's Anthony Gray, and District 17's Jacob Wright. Kigea says that the new plan will bring change to the criminal justice system here in Dane County.
4: Well, ultimately our goal is to reduce the headcount in the jail, and um, our plan enables us to do so without spending any more of the taxpayers' money, um, so not asking for the additional $10 million that was um, previously proposed.
2: Facing rising costs of the project from inflation, the Dane County Board has struggled to agree on how much they're willing to spend on the project to build a new jail. After the price tag rose twice this spring, the board declined to tack on another $10 million needed for the $165 million project. Unable to reach consensus, the issue is scheduled to appear on the ballot in November as a ballot referendum. But today's new proposal would not only eliminate the need for that referendum, it would, supervisors say, bring the price tag below the $165 million approved in March. The Black Caucus's plan would bring the jail down to just five stories, one less than the current plan, and it would hold 725 beds, about 100 less than the current plan. It would also eliminate some of the medical beds in the facility. The new proposal also contains policy initiatives to reduce the population of the jail. Those reforms include a weekend court pilot program to process court hearings over the weekend, reforms to the bail system, not arresting people who report crimes who have an outstanding warrant, and limiting the number of federal prisoners incarcerated in the Dane County Jail. Here's Supervisor Kigea on those reforms.
4: And There's a lot of people that are in jail that don't need to be there, whether it's because they're in jail just because they can't afford the cash bail or because they're in jail on probation and parole holds. And so we're looking to eliminate a lot of those things to help get folks out of jail Um, And we do understand it's inhumane, like definitely a new jail needs to be built. We're not against that at all. It's just, it doesn't need to be as big as previously proposed.
2: According to a consultant report, Dane County arrests and incarcerates black folks at more than double the national average. Additionally, around 1.4% of the county's black population is incarcerated at any given time. Meanwhile, the county incarcerates white folk at less than half the national average. Dana Pelabon says that the community often talks the talk, but now Madison needs to walk the walk.
4: We can no longer express that with words. We need to enact ideas that actually move these these disparities forward to not affect black folks in the same way that they have for decades here in Madison.
2: The announcement of the new jail came on the same day as the jail announced the moving of residents to other counties. But April Kigea says that she was unaware of the jail's plans.
4: We had no idea that he was even thinking of that. So it's also frustrating because I don't even think he has the full authority to do that. um, To move people out and to shut down a portion of the jail and um, incur... A lot of money in transportation costs without our um, authority, so that's another matter that we're going to be looking into.
2: Sheriff Calvin Barrett says that moving jail residents is a standard procedure and one that he has full authority to carry out. Additionally, he says that the timing was a coincidence and that he informed County Board President Patrick Miles of the plan yesterday. Miles did confirm that he was made aware of the plans yesterday, but says that he too asked Barrett if the move was related to the plans for the new jail.
5: I had a meeting with the Black Caucus last Friday and had asked staff to attend that meeting to provide any assistance to help the Black Caucus get their resolution complete so we could get that introduced. And the sheriff was present at the meeting. He didn't say anything about this Uh, Coming up at that time. So when he and I spoke yesterday, I raised the concern that, you know, coming on the heels of that meeting and the Black Caucus started circulating their resolution right on the heels of that. He's making this announcement and um, he indicated that uh, this is something that's been in the works that it took, you know, took several weeks to make these arrangements with other counties um, it isn't something that he did spur of the moment.
2: And while Sheriff Barrett says that he applauds the Black Caucus' efforts, he is skeptical about a smaller jail.
3: As well as the proposed uh, changes uh, in the size uh, of the facility um, to uh, for cost savings, we're going to lose that um, in shipping costs. So uh, I really think it, it's important for us to really look at, uh, you know, a lot of the good things that the, the resolution uh, proposes and do that in collaboration with uh, a new safe uh, and um, a rehabil- rehabilitative facility and not in place of.
2: The proposal is headed to a joint meeting between two Dane County committees next week. It's slated to go before the full board on August 18th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate wicke
0: Yesterday was the first day of August here in Wisconsin, and wow, did it feel like it. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has the full breakdown of the heat that's forecast over the next few days.
6: Weather in Madison today is the calm before tomorrow's storm. Temperatures right now are right around 88 degrees, but are feeling closer to 95 with the heat index. Humidity is sitting at 55% with a 7% cloud cover, and winds are coming from the south at 13 miles per hour. Wind gusts are reaching over 35 miles per hour today. The UV index reached 8 once again which we have been seeing pretty consecutively in Madison. Today's ragweed pollen was also in the high category, and with both of these in the high categories, it's a good reminder to keep yourself protected and healthy. Through the evening and into tomorrow is looking to be unstable with a low air pressure mass that will be moving into the area. These storms could have the possibility to become more enhanced as instability might be present as the upper level shortwave is likely to push the air mass. A shortwave trough is a disturbance in the mid or upper atmosphere, which induces upward motion ahead of it that can contribute to thunderstorm development ahead of a shortwave. If this holds true, this can be a main factor in tomorrow's thunderstorms. The winds that will be coming from the south tomorrow, mixed with the humidity that will be present, will be the reason for a higher heat index tomorrow, which is looking to be around 6 degrees higher than the actual temperatures. The south-southwest winds are looking to reach 13 miles per hour steadily, but gusts will be much higher. Tomorrow is looking to reach a high of 84 degrees, again with about a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms. Stronger storms are looking to come towards the afternoon, but some may occur beforehand. Thursday is looking to feel a bit cooler, reaching around 82 degrees after the low-pressure system made its way through. Friday is looking to stay a bit cooler as well, only a few degrees higher than Thursday. Saturday is where we are going to be seeing those higher temperatures again, likely to be in the low 90s due to warm invection bringing hot and humid conditions. With that in mind, be sure to jump into beautiful Lake Monono with a 74 degree water temperature. With your WORT weather report, I'm weather producer, Caitlin Davis.
1: We continue our coverage of the 2022 gubernatorial election with a conversation with Republican primary candidate Tim Ranthun. He is most well known for his calls to change Wisconsin's 2020 electoral votes, a move commonly called decertification, that legal experts have said is impossible. WORT producer Nate Buggyhout spoke with Ramthin last month about that election, as well as what else he would address as governor. This is a shortened version of their full interview, which you can find online at WORTFM.org.
2: I'm joined now by Republican candidate for governor and state representative from Campbell Sport, Tim Rantham. Tim, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me.
7: Nate, it's good to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to be on. It's an honor.
2: Yes, of course. So just sort of right out of the gate here, can, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you?
7: Well, I, um, I'm i a servant um, of buying for the people, Nate. And I tell you that because in 45 years in the private sector, I was uh, always wanting to be where the, where the interface between product and services met the paying customer. I have a high um, desire and passion for meeting and exceeding expectations. I'm all about quality and efficiency. I'm an efficiency guy. And so uh, multiple organizations, multiple industries, multiple cultures, I had to navigate through in my leadership positions to raise the bar of efficiency and execution in essentially seven organizations that had national footprint responsibility. So I, I tell you that because multiple organizations and cultures and industries gives me a robust business management, businessman flavor that exceeds all other candidates in this race. I'm also a seated school board member for the Kewaskam School District. I've been doing that now. I'm into my fourth term. As of this past April, I was elected again, and I didn't campaign for it because I wanted to see what the people would do without any sort of solicitation on my part, and I won re-election overwhelmingly because they're very happy with what I do. I get things done. I ask a lot of questions. I do not go along and get along. I'm not status quo, and I don't tolerate mediocrity or learn behavior. So when you serve the people in a governance role, you need to be that, and if you can't be that, then you shouldn't be serving people. And a governance role. So, um, my public sector life—not just for the school board, but also for the state assembly and in the legislature—I've been uh, there now for my fourth year. I'm in my second term. So, when you combine that experience as well to my um, uh, bio, if you would, I have more public service experience than any other candidate running for governor combined. Now say that thing about experience because it is important you you want to elect people into positions that don't have to be retrained or trained at all how to do things and that's me I'll hit the ground running but the thing about me is I'm not an insider yes I have uh, 14 years of public service experience but I'm an outsider working on the inside who sees what needs to be done different and better to raise efficiency of, of execution and delivery and also to give the people what they deserve which is representation and uh that's what i'm doing here and and uh and, and my my necessity in doing it is i i'm i've come to realize Nate that the body doesn't serve the people like it should like it could it serves more of itself than than the people that put individuals into office and, and there's unfinished business in in the state government obviously and so what i need to do is come at it from a different angle so i decided on january 18th that i would run for governor i announced on february 12th Again, I'll remind you and everyone else, I haven't been running for four years or more through PACs and other things, and I, I did not inherit a million dollars uh, from my, my family's business to help fund this. I am grassroots. I'm Patriot Group. I'm Freedom Fighters. I'm GOP Party members and lots of fans, lots of support all over the state of Wisconsin. I'm authentic. I'm the real deal, and I get things done of mine for the people. Thank you.
2: And so now I know that most people uh, sort of know you for your stance on election integrity here in Wisconsin, and Uh I want to get to that in a little bit here. But uh, before we get there, what are some of the other top issues that you see facing the state right now?
7: Medical freedom, upholding constitutional rights, ending tyranny, education, not indoctrination, government accountability. The government agencies spend a lot of taxpayer money, and there is no metric to my knowledge that measures their efficiency and, and or their their or they meet and exceed expectations or objectives. We need to make, uh, make that happen. Um, I'm pro-life, and we, we just had a big uh, move with the Supreme Court recently with Roe v. Wade, but uh, I am pro-life as well. Um, taxation. Taxation is a big deal. I, I've been accused that I, I'm so tight I squeak when I walk. Because uh, I am. I'm very frugal and very fiscally responsible. I want the state to be frugal and, and fiscally responsible as well. So taxation, we're in the top 10 in, this, in the nation. Wisconsin is. We're number 8. Number 1 is New Jersey. Number 7 is Illinois. So we're you know just a little bit better than, than our neighbor. But uh, we need to be in the bottom 10%, Nate, not the top 10%. And my goal is within the four years of my first term as governor, I'm going to make Wisconsin in the bottom 10% of how states are taxed in this nation. Um, I'm pro-Second Amendment. I'm uh, against and will address trafficking, uh, human trafficking and otherwise. I uh, believe our broadband situations in the state are lacking miserably, and that needs to be addressed and corrected so businesses, schools, and families can operate and and be on the up and up. Um, And and I think I mentioned Second Amendment. If I didn't, uh, I'm a Second Amendment proponent as well, and that needs to be upheld as well. Uh, Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms has to be sustained. So and that's it in a nutshell. Oh, and, and agriculture. Agriculture, I'm a huge a supporter of ag. Ag is salt of the earth, and uh, there isn't a farmer I know that I wouldn't take a bullet for. They're all great people and no farms, no food. We need to take care of our farmers and last but not least businesses, small and large. Got hurt really bad the last couple of years in this state by the current uh, executive branch, and we need to get that corrected and take care of them as well. So those, that's a nutshell snapshot of, of uh, other elements I'm focused on other than election integrity.
2: Now, you mentioned it there, election integrity, and now I I do want to start to get into that a bit here, and specifically looking at the uh, 2020 presidential election. Now, you recently called for that election to be decertified here in Wisconsin after the Supreme Court ruled that absentee drop boxes are Uh, Illegal. Uh, And those are the same ballots that uh, that ended up electing you and other colleagues to the state Senate. Can you sort of walk me through a little bit as to uh, why you are pushing so hard to decertify that election?
7: The only statewide race in 2020 was the presidential race. The only race or seat or comments about electoral college ballots is to the presidential seat only. And and all of the, uh, for the most part, the measurable uh, effect of that all happened at that level and that seat. My focus on electoral colleges because of the proven fraud that has been expressed, not just through special voter deputies in Racine County um, um, and issues with machines, issues with ballots, issues with chain of custody, issues with the Wisconsin border list. But you also have the new Supreme Court ruling that drop boxes were illegal, they are illegal, and they will be illegal. And when you um, factor in the effect of those ballots that infused into the general population of legal ballots, you don't have black or white, you've got gray. And nobody can tell us where where the line is between black and white. It's all gray because the whole pool of 3.3 million ballots are polluted. So the only recourse you have is to either redo it or decertify, which is to reclaim the 10 electors. It's specific to the presidential seat, and, and that's my focus. It's a plenary right through our Constitution. It's been approved with the mechanism of my resolution that justifies the action, and it just needs to be taken. But I can't get it to happen yet because I don't have the type of support and the body I need specifically from the leadership. They've obstructed this the whole time, and I think they've obstructed it because they're compromised. If you really don't want to do something you'll come up with all kinds of reasons to avoid it and or to uh, run out the clock and delay and that's, that's what's been going on since this question was brought up. To be told something's going to happen or a special uh, counsel is coming in or blah blah this and blah blah that, at the end of the day it's, it's all uh, optics, it's all to deflect it's all to run on clocks. I want something done to hold people in process accountable. So I push for the, the certification and reclaiming because it's an action we can do. It's an action we should do. And there is precedence to this from local to state to county, as well as national level, 20 states have addressed voter issues and, and disenfranchisement in their elections. And, and, and there was two recourses that occurred, two remedies. One was either to do it over or or to, or to certify. And so there's nothing new coming here. It's it just that it's to be at the presidential level, but there's nothing new because it's happened before in our nation. And there's 20 cases I can send you after this call that proves that. And I'd like to see Wisconsin be 21.
2: So we're running up a little bit against the clock here. Uh, do you just have any mm-hmm. final thoughts that you'd like to share with me here today?
7: I'm of by and for the people. I work to do right. I want governance to do what it should, as it's defined by our forefathers. I want the people's voice to be heard. I serve the Lord first and the people 1.5, and I draw the line right there. I'm I'm all about truth, transparency, uh, openness, and honesty, and um, I won't waver on, on pursuing injustice. That's what I'm drawn to, like a fireman is drawn to a burning building. Uh, I'm the real deal. I'm the breath of fresh air. I'll get it done if I'm given the chance. Uh, August 9th is the primary for this position, and um uh, you need to win that, to prove that the people's judgment is sound, and they did finally pick the right person for the job. Right time, right role, right person. It's it's time for Rampton.
2: I've been talking with Tim Rampton, a Republican candidate for governor here in Wisconsin. The primary election takes place on August 9th. Uh, Tim, thank you again so much for coming on and talking with me today.
7: Thanks, Nate. It was a pleasure. Bye, sir.
1: Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us.
0: Well, UW-Madison is still in the midst of its summer term, the Cardinal call returns to WORT with an update about what's happening on campus ahead of the new school year. Producer Hope Carnop spoke with Daily Cardinal sports editor Donnie Slusher to learn more about the shakeup affecting UW athletics, namely the expansion of the Big Ten Conference.
3: The fans thought it was weird. We were surprised. Um, we have a mental image of conferences in our heads. We know the Pac-12 teams are on the West Coast and they should play other West Coast Pac-12 teams. Big Ten is in the Midwest. They should, you know, Big Ten teams should play Midwest Big Ten teams. So this is like, it's, it's breaking the rules in our brain.
8: Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by one of our sports editors, Donnie Slusher, to explain the Big Ten expansion news and preview the upcoming Badger football season. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Donnie.
3: Thank you for having me, Hope. It's great to be here.
8: Can you break down the basics of who is joining the Big Ten conference?
3: All right, yeah. So about a month ago, uh, June 30th, it was announced that um the morning that usc and ucla had put in applications to join the big ten and that and by the end of the day it was uh, another announcement came out that the big ten presidents and chancellors had voted unanimously to allow them into the big ten so basically what that means is that starting in the 2024-25 uh school year uh, usc and ucla will will be a part of the big ten officially and will play other big ten schools
8: can you explain the concept of realignment and how conferences evolve over time?
3: Yeah, so every team, every every sports team, every school like belongs to a conference except for like the except for like certain independent teams like Notre Dame Football, which we'll get to. But you know Wisconsin belongs in the Big Ten, so does Michigan, so does Ohio State. Um, and it may differ by sport, but it is the expectation that you know when you're in a conference, you'll stay there. But realignment is basically the process of teams switching conferences. So USC, UCLA. Um, so that's an example of realignment, uh, as was Texas and Oklahoma deciding to switch to the SEC last year. And this isn't new either. Uh, stuff like this happens every few years or so.
8: You have wrote an article about the teams that could be added to the Big Ten next. Can you walk us through which schools you think might be a good fit?
3: Well, the first one and the main one was Notre Dame. They're kind of the obvious team there. They're the school that everybody wants, that at every conference would, would want to have Notre Dame. They're one of the most recognizable brands in all of college sports, especially their football team, which is always good. But they don't belong to any conference in football. But like, And also, they make regional sense. They're in Indiana. And there's already two other Big Ten schools in Indiana. And also, uh, Michigan's in the Big Ten, which is their rival. And USC will be in the Big Ten soon, which is, which, which is probably their number one rival. Also, Oregon and Washington the uh they are probably the two uh, biggest brands left in the Pac-12, and I feel like they're too good for the Pac-12 at this point. The Pac-12 is a sinking ship; they should try to bolt as as soon as they can. And if the Big Ten can get uh, Washington and Oregon, then we will—we will—or Big Ten will essentially own the West Coast, and that'll be a big deal for a Midwest team. And then the last—the uh, last team I brought up was North Carolina who uh, they're they're currently in the south like the ac they're in the acc currently which is in talks of like also kind of disbanding some of those teams have talked about or there's been discussions of like clemson and miami going to the acc and i think i think north carolina should go to the big 10 rather than the sec because big 10 cares more about academics and north carolina's football team would get pummeled for years in the sec
8: how do you think that fans players and staff have been reacting to this expansion and what are some of the pros and cons that have been brought up
3: Well, I feel like the fan reaction was obviously like the easiest to decipher because players and staff members kind of have to like kind of they have have to shield their true opinions to a certain extent. The fans uh, fans thought it was weird. We were surprised. Um, We have a mental image of conferences in our heads. We know the Pac-12 teams are on the West Coast and they should play other West Coast Pac-12 teams. Big Ten is in the Midwest. They should, you know, Big Ten teams should play Midwest Big Ten teams. So this is like. It's, it's breaking the rules in our brain. And so a lot of people were just, like, surprised. And Big Ten and SEC fans were kind of just laughing about it because fans of those programs are in, like, a position of power. You know, teams want to go to the Big Ten and SEC. And fans of Pac-12, ACC, Big 12 teams, they're a little bit more worried.
8: Overall, what do you think that the Big Ten expansion means for the Badgers team?
3: Um, Well, face value. Uh, we're going to play USC and UCLA more, more than we usually do. That's the basic answer. But um, I think... Ultimately, it's a that positive because if if more major programs join the Big Ten, the Big Ten increases in value, and more team like and teams in the Big Ten are going to make more money just by being in the conference. Every team in every conference gets a certain amount of money just for being in the conference. That's one of the reasons why USC and UCLA switched from the Pac-12 is because the Pac-12 they weren't making nearly as much as the Big Ten would, was. Or and also there's a, there's discussions of a new uh, Big Ten TV deal with Fox that's going to be worth like a billion dollars. Point is, Wisconsin is going to get more money. That's going to help everything. And also, Wisconsin, I think, in, in, a, in a more subtle way, this is just like my opinion, but I think we will. I think Wisconsin will be more recognizable uh, to West Coast uh, recruits and just the West Coast culture. We won't see as much of the uh, you know Midwest cold strangers that, that we're kind of perceived as now.
8: So football season is quickly approaching. What are some of the storylines that you anticipate the Daily Cardinal sports staff will be keeping an eye on?
3: Uh, there's obvious ones like uh, Braylon Allen, our star running back. He's uh, he's, he's only in his second year. Uh, he's only 18 years old and he's he seems like he's going to be, you know, one of the next great Wisconsin running backs. It's going to be exciting to, to, to follow him. Also Graham Mertz, you know, not only is he quarterback in the most important position, but he's had such a storied career so far. You know, he started out so like as such a hyper crew, and then he had that great game, and then he's kind of been shaky since then. Then there were also more subtle stories that were that we're really interested in. Like, uh, we have a new uh, offense coordinator for the first time in, in years, uh, uh, Bobby Ingram, and he has no familiarity to Wisconsin whatsoever, which is a really weird move for Wisconsin. We always just hire like you know clones who who, who run the ball. So um, I'm excited to see that, and also the defense. We also had a guys, but we also had a guys in the draft, like Leo Chenal and Jack Sandborn. But uh, I trust Jim Leonard.
8: Is there anything else you'd like to mention about your story?
3: When I was doing research, I was uh, I found a survey that was conducted by this, uh, this company called uh, Official Visit, and um, they asked a thousand uh, high school football players like what they thought, like to, to like basically rank programs based on like their brand value, like their image value. I basically read it as, like, which teams were the coolest, you know? And Wisconsin, I, I didn't I didn't expect Wisconsin to finish high at all. You know, Wisconsin. But we finished, we finished 33rd. We finished behind Iowa. How is Iowa a more, like, popular brand than Wisconsin? That doesn't make any sense to me. So, yeah, um, I think we're way cooler than them. That, that's all I wanted to bring up.
8: Thank you so much for coming on the show, Donnie, and talking us through your story.
3: Of course. So thank you for having me.
8: In other campus news, former UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank announced last month that she would no longer become the next president of Northwestern University due to an aggressive cancer diagnosis. Blank and her husband are returning to Madison, where she will receive treatment at UW Health. Northwestern's president, Morton Shapiro, was asked to remain in the role as the search for a new president continues. Back at UW-Madison, new Chancellor Jennifer Manukin's first day is August 4th. There will be an ice cream social on Bascom Hill for students, faculty, and staff on Thursday from 2 to 3.30 p.m. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. We have a new print issue out this week, which we mail home to new students. Check out an online version of the print edition and all of our stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
1: Wildlife Weekly feature contributor Jackie Sandberg certainly does love all birds, some of them cause problems for the region's native species. This week, Jackie walks us through the different kinds of invasive avians that are flying through Wisconsin's skies.
9: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about invasive species, primarily birds, that are here in the state of Wisconsin and the United States, but most of them are here in Wisconsin also. Now, I think there's a really great article about invasive bird species that was written a couple years ago by the American Bird Conservancy, so I'd highly recommend if you check out their website at abcbirds.org. They have a really great blog about this, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about the different types of invasive bird species, but also like how many are here, where do they come from, how do they impact other birds here in the state of Wisconsin? So it's pretty interesting to me. The first invasive birds started uh, here, arrived in North America about 400 years ago. So it's been a long time since we've had invasive species. And when I say invasive species, it means that birds that have been introduced, ones that are generally harmful to native bird populations. So it's a species of plant or animal that outcompetes other species causes damage to an ecosystem that would consider it to be invasive. A non-native species is something that we also have a lot of here in our state and that's a species that is from somewhere else but it's like from a different country, for example, it originated somewhere other than its current location. And it's been introduced into an area where it now lives. And so maybe it has been doing well in a certain area. And sometimes it's called an exotic species. And that's different than an endemic species, which would be native to a particular location where that animal resides or a population resides. And so there's those different categorizations here in the state. So When I'm talking about invasive species, I'm thinking about the ones that are most harmful to our other birds that are endemic or that live here that are native. So invasive species to Wisconsin, the primary ones that I'm thinking about when we talk about birds would be the European starling, the English house sparrow, So obviously Europe and England, right? So that's going to be across the Atlantic. We've got the mute swan, which competes directly with our native trumpeter and tundra swans. And most recently we have an influx of European goldfinch in our state. Not very many, but a few of them have been identified here. And then there's some others that would be considered non-native. So rock pigeons, for example, are not native to Wisconsin, but they live here and they don't do a lot of harm. But some people think of them as kind of nuisance birds. Uh, We also have the chuckar partridge which has been pretty common in our area uh i released sometimes just because of pets or because of stocking for hunting uh, which is what brings me to the ring-necked pheasant which is something we see a lot in wisconsin because their populations are quite large but they were actually introduced back in the 1800s and because of our habitat here in wisconsin which is a lot of grassland and just ideal you know food for them Even though it is introduced and stocked here in our state as a game bird for hunting, it has just kind of grown into this situation where the birds thrive here, and then they just naturally breed. And so therefore their populations have been able to flourish. So, you know, starting with the ringneck pheasant, if I'm talking about birds that are not really supposed to be here, they stay here and are still stocked by our Department of Natural Resources. So that's about 75,000 birds are annually stocked, and that was last year's hunting season. And so you imagine that a lot of those birds might be hunted, but many of them probably survive still after the hunting season. And so that's why they're Populations are growing. So, since invasive birds, the ones that are harmful to other native birds here in North America, have been here for many years, sometimes they uh, pose serious threats to our, our other birds so they definitely push other birds out of nests so they outcompete the native birds for their food for nesting sites uh, for breeding territory they also do a lot of crop damage and when we're talking about diseases you know if you have one type of bird or other type of animal that's going to be introduced to a brand new area it's coming with it with different diseases viruses you know even gut systems there's so much that goes into that where you know obviously sharing that kind of sharing that across species boundaries sometimes you can introduce zoonotic diseases so I think about the avian influenza outbreak right now where for example pigeons are one that definitely carry avian influenza maybe you're talking about a duck species that came from Europe like that could very easily spread a certain disease so you know those are the types of threats we're talking about whether it's to other birds or even to people and then sometimes those birds are so you know mean or detrimental to other birds that they'll even drive out or even kill some of the native species so for example house sparrows the English house sparrow definitely does that to our native bluebirds and they compete for the nest boxes and they will harass and destroy eggs and other things so that's like the most harmful that we might see so what about how big these invasive bird populations are well over the last 50 years some of it has actually declined in north america um, but the it really depends on what species you're talking about so the English house sparrow for example right now is at about seven million in their population across the US but that's actually down from 150 million back in 1940 and that's kind of for undetermined reasons they're not exactly sure why but likely due to agricultural reasons or other but that's a lot of birds if you can think about it that seven million birds that are out competing a lot of our native species so you know for the last, I would say 50 years or so, and again, this is coming from the American Bird Conservancy, You know, we have basically lost about an estimated of 3 billion birds of our native populations as a result of invasive species. So with that many birds displacing other birds that can make the diversity in an area go down. Uh, So that's maybe why you might see in very urban areas where house sparrows or English house sparrows or European starlings are thriving, you might see more of them than you normally would. Those are ones that have adapted very well to living around humans or around urbanization. Uh, starlings have about a population of 46 million birds they're among one of our most common songbirds, uh, is what they state and they also can cause more than 800 million dollars in crop damage each year so that is quite a bit we have the rock pigeon that's a non-native species um again but they they again don't causes much typical harm. Uh, some people will say that some of that harm could be more like damage to buildings, for example, because a lot of them will roost on buildings, create nests, they'll, they'll you know, excrete a lot of feces on buildings or on cars. And so, yes, that can cause uh, damage if we're talking about it from that perspective. But they are also one of those that carry a lot of different types of diseases, uh, parasites or other. So even influenza is one, but also things like Trichomonas, which is a parasite that is found in the digestive tract or in the mouth and the oral cavity and for birds that eat other birds like peregrine falcons that might prey on pigeons that can very easily spread to other raptor populations for example. So it's about 90% of uh, rock pigeon populations have Trichomonas. And uh, another one that you might see maybe more uncommonly um, that I don't always talk about is the Eurasian collared dove. Now that it has been admitted to our Wildlife Center, we've had a few of those cases. Seems to be coming maybe more from more the southern Wisconsin area. But they do have a growing population, about 400,000 in the U.S. And uh, it seems like the stats are that every year about 37% more of them are continuing to reproduce here and their populations are growing. So those are some of the ones, the big name ones that I think about in the United States or in Wisconsin. Uh, ones that we definitely have to talk about whether we're coming from a population conservation perspective, rehabilitation perspective, you know, what is your opinion? Do you do you rehabilitate invasive species knowing that they're already here in well-established populations? Or do we help to control invasive populations if they're admitted to rehabilitation uh, so that we can help in conservation efforts. All of that is such a big philosophical question and topic that rehabilitators talk about all the time. And sometimes it comes down to individual preference or how you view invasive species. And when do you determine an invasive species is no longer really invasive anymore? I think those are big questions that conservationists have all the time and are bringing up in lots of discussions at conferences and others and papers. So just some food for thought for today, talking about You know, what do we do in those situations? Personally our Wildlife Center is available to help as we can. Uh, We generally do allocate most of our resources towards conservation efforts and so therefore we don't rehabilitate invasive or non-native species, but it doesn't mean there aren't resources out there for other rehabilitators that do choose to. So we will always refer folks to those that do rehabilitate those species, but we are also always available for you know the ethics of that animal. If it's in pain, it's suffering, and you found it sick or injured, and it needs you know maybe a, an emergency you know humane euthanasia because it's so severely injured. You know we're not going to deny an animal that at the very least. So that is still something that we can help with as a center. So each individual rehabilitator makes that decision when they get their licenses uh, if they're working with birds, for example. So definitely check out your Wisconsin DNR page for those that take those species. If you do find an invasive or non-native species, or you can always take a picture and send it to us and we'll be able to hopefully identify it for you so that you'll know where to go in case of emergency or in that situation. So if you ever find a sick, injured, or orphaned animal, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly.
1: It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: On this week's archival edition of Radio Astronomy, host Rourke Habegger walks us through one of the greatest debates in the astronomy world. Just how many galaxies are there in space?
10: Einstein published his Geometric Theory of Relativity in 1915. This would upend the world of physics over the next decade. However, astronomers were simultaneously struggling with another paradigm-shattering concept. How many galaxies are there? Hello, and welcome to Radio Astronomy on WORT 89.9. I'm Roark Havager, and today I'm going to tell you about the Great Debate. On April 26, 1920, Harlow Shapley and Heber Curtis gave 40-minute presentations during the National Academy of Sciences' annual meeting. Their conflicting conclusions on what they called spiral nebulae would shape the next century of astronomy research. Their debate was well planned in advance. In 1919, George Hale was tasked with planning a lecture series for the National Academy's 1920 meeting. Hale originally wanted to have the series focus on Einstein's relativity and its applications to astronomy. But his friend, Charles Abbott, recommended against this with the following statement. I pray to God that the progress of science will send relativity to some region of space beyond the fourth dimension, from whence it may never return to plague us. Retrospectively, this is hilarious. Today we get to see general relativity in action. Gravitational wave observatories like LIGO give us the chance to observe binary black hole mergers. To Abbott's dismay. General relativity did not go away. However, Abbott also pointed out that a more enlightening discussion would come from addressing a dissonance in the astronomy community. Some astronomers claimed spiral nebulae, like Andromeda, were other galaxies. Others found this preposterous and suggested they were just collections of gas emitting diffuse light. This fueled a nearly year-long correspondence between Hale, Harlow Shapley, and Heber Curtis. Curtis had recently published work detailing why spiral nebulae were other galaxies. Shapley was an expert in distance calculations with Cepheid variable stars, and argued the Milky Way was much too large for these objects to be outside of it. The letters back and forth between Shapley and Curtis set the stage for that great debate in April of 1920. Was there just one galaxy, the Milky Way, or were there more galaxies? The answer to that question would not come until later in the 1920s. Edwin Hubble measured Cepheid variable stars from inside the Andromeda nebula. This put the debate to rest by identifying Andromeda as its own galaxy, many light years away from us. Looking back, we might say that Curtis was right and Shapley was wrong, but that would be wrong of us. The main piece of data that Curtis and Shapley disagreed on was the size of our own galaxy. Shapley argued it could be as large as 300,000 light years in diameter. Curtis measured it to be only 20,000 light years in diameter. Our modern estimates suggest it is just over 100,000 light years in diameter. In terms of magnitude, Shapley was more accurate in his estimate. Also, he placed our Sun at a radius of 60,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. Curtis placed our Sun near the center of the galaxy. Once again, Shapley was more accurate. He supported this point with a reference to the Copernican principle. The Copernican principle is an important part of astronomy, and it's a specific example of Einstein's relativity postulates. Basically, the Copernican principle is the assumption that we are not special observers. There is nothing unique or central to where we are in the universe. This idea was revolutionary. Shapley's use of the Copernican principle and his estimates for the Milky Way's size were more accurate. But he was coming to the wrong conclusion. Curtis came to the right conclusion that there were other galaxies than the Milky Way, but for the wrong reasons. The fundamental problem was they could not comprehend the universe being big enough to contain multiple things with a size of 300,000 light years. Of course, modern cosmological estimates put the size of the observable universe at 93 billion light-years, more than enough room for tons of galaxies. Astronomy has come a long way since the Curtis-Shapley Great Debate in 1920, but the constant discussion of new observations and their implications is the same. The scientific method is just as effective now as it was then. Thanks for tuning into Radio Astronomy today.
0: I hope you have a stellar week.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6.
0: Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin.
1: Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis.
0: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal.
1: Super Dave Lawrence and engineered the show.
0: Nate helped produce this newscast.
1: And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT.
0: I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Inruish Joe Patio. Good night.